Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hello, welcome to Medicus. I'm your co-host, Brendan Connolly. And hi, I'm Emily Hagan, also a co-host. Um, today we have Dr. Alyssa Burgart as a guest today. Um, Dr. Burgart is a board certified pediatric anesthesiologist and bioethicist. She specializes in pediatric anesthesia and pediatric abdominal transplant anesthesia. She also has a joint appointment in the Stanford Center for Medi- Biomedical Ethics, serves as the co-chair of the LPCH Ethics Committee and as a member of the SHC Ethics Committee. She provides ethics consultation services for people of all ages. Her ethics interests include pediatric ethics, organ transplantation, communication skills, disability rights, women's healthcare access, adolescent decision-making, ethics education, and excellence in ethics consultation. Finally, Dr. Burgart is also active on Twitter, and you can find her Twitter handle by checking out the Medicus episode page. Dr. Burgart, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're happy to um, have you on today, and we're hoping to explore the field of pediatric bioethics with you, knowing that this is your field of expertise. So before we begin, we always like to get a bit of background on our guest. Can you please describe your work in pediatric bioethics? Yeah, thanks for asking. So I really enjoy working in pediatric bioethics, which is is actually a surprise to me. When I, I had my first job in, in ethics before going to medical school, I, I worked at Cedar sinai Medical Center as an ethics assistant. And the pediatric cases honestly were the hardest. And back then, if you'd said I was going to become a pediatric bioethicist, I would have said you were incorrect. Um, but as it turns out, I really, I really enjoy children. I really enjoy working with parents. And I think that's a huge issue for people when they're considering whether they're interested in pediatrics or not is you're kind of going into it knowing that you're going to be working with both children and adults. Brendan and I were actually just talking about this yesterday um, (laughs) when we were getting ready for our interview and talking about how we both think that to some extent we would be able to treat children when we're physicians, but it's the parents (laughs) that we'd be more worried about. And the fact that we would have to interact and FaceTime with so many different people in order to be able to treat the patient and take into account not only what the child is saying, but also what the parents are saying and maybe also what like the siblings in the background are saying and that it's a lot more complex than solely just treating and talking to the pediatric patient. But, you know, it's an interesting observation because I think that it's an incorrect thing that we teach people mm. somehow is that, oh, when you take care of adults, you're just taking care of the adult. And the adult is is obviously the primary decision maker so long as they're able to make decisions. But I actually think that um, people who care for adult patients can learn a lot about effective communication from pediatric providers because they're just so used to working with multiple people. So when you have a patient, an adult patient, for example, who has dementia or for whatever reason is unable to communicate, they're, they're intubated in the ICU, um, you know, there are many reasons that come up where for adults, you really are having to interface with more than one person in order to determine how can we provide the best care to this human being that we're taking care of right now. 
Yeah, thank you so much for sharing about your work in Peds Bioethics. And yeah, I think that like sheds important light on what your work actually looks like. And so Brendan and I also know that you attended Stretch for medical school and for your master's in bioethics. And Brendan and I are both second year students at Stretch, so we think that's really cool. Um, so we're just wondering um, if you could tell us about how you think your education at Stretch, both for medical school and your study of bioethics, has prepared you for your work in peds bioethics. You know, something that really attracted me to Stretch School of Medicine was the focus on social justice. Um, so, for example, the, the Center for Global Health and Justice is something that my class helped spearhead. So it's really exciting. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's really exciting to see the continued commitment to justice and how that's such an integral part of medical education, because I think it should be. Um, it's something where you really cannot take care of all the people who present to a hospital if you're not really deeply aware of the systemic factors that affect how they receive care, how you can do a good job. How can you ensure that the advice you're giving makes sense for that individual person? So I think the foundation in social justice is fantastic. And I love that it's really such a forefront of the Jesuit model of medical education. Um, and the same really goes for the, for the bioethics education. The Nicewanger Institute just has such an incredible focus on that. Um, so I think it was a very good foundational experience for me in terms of my additional ethics education. And of course, I have tons of wonderful friends who are still at Stritch. Um, so it's really great to, to continue to have those connections. Right. Yeah, that sounds very nice. So we know that now you're on, we mentioned in the introduction, you're on two different ethics committees. And would you be able to just describe your works on those, your work on those committees? Sure. I'm the co-chair, the physician co-chair of the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital Ethics Committee, which is actually not just for the, it's branded as a children's hospital, but that's also where labor and delivery happens. So we also provide um, frequently maternal ethics consultations as well, as well as maternal fetal medicine. We have a very active maternal fetal medicine program. And you can imagine there are some very complicated conditions that come up there, difficult situations that um, it can be helpful to have an ethicist who can help participate. The additional role I play is I'm a member of the Stanford Hospital, essentially adult ethics committee. So that's more dealing with adult ethics. And then I do ethics consultation at both hospitals. So it's a really integral role of my practice. I spend about 50% of my time specifically doing ethics consultation work. Oh, wow. When you were in medical school or even residency, did you foresee your career looking like this or were your involvements in these committees um, and decisions to participate in them, like more spontaneous, would you say? So I'm in a pretty unique position in that I was an ethicist before I went to medical school. Right. So this was always the practice that I dreamed of, that I would somehow fi figure out, you know, I would go to medical school, I would figure out what specialty really drove me, and I would somehow figure out how to be an ethics consultant as well. And so uh, I'm very, very fortunate that things have really come together for me in a way at Stanford that were that are better than I could have really imagined. Wow, that's awesome that you've been able to carve out this career involving both practicing medicine and fulfilling your 
passion for bioethics. Um, being interested in bioethics myself, it's like really refreshing to hear that one can actually pursue both at the same time. And it's not just a lofty dream, but it's actually, <laughs> it's actually realistic and your evidence um, for that. And yeah, I mean, I'm still figuring out in what ways I'll be able and um, would like to incorporate bioethics into my career. But I think it's really great to know that w one, you do and like two, you attended Stretch, which has provided you the foundation and the opportunities and the, and the people like you mentioned before that you are still in touch with to help you do so. So that's really great to hear. Yeah. Um, so now we kind of have a few bioethics more. Now we kind of have a few just general bioethics questions to ask um, that we think would help orient our listeners and then ourselves for our own education just about um, what pediatric bioethics is all about. And so we're just going to kind of go down a little list we made up. And um, if you can maybe just give us a, a, a quick learning session on, on each of these, that would be great. So Emily, okay. if you want to start. Sure. Okay, so our first um, pediatric bioethics topic that we think would be great to cover is assent versus informed consent, and specifically in the context of pediatric patients. Sure. So assent is this, well, maybe you should start with consent. So consent is this really important factor whenever we're trying to engage with a patient, we're trying to help determine with them what it is that it's okay for us to do to them or to information that we want to gather from them. And it's so, so important, of course, that that's a voluntary process, that the patient understands that, you know, we don't have a right to do anything. We don't have a right to touch anyone or to um, gather information about their body. It's not, unless it's an emergency, there is no implicit right for us to have any of that. And so it's so important in our relationship with patients that we're really concrete about building that relationship and getting really active permission and participation from adult patients. Kids, of course, are just a little, they're, they're in that developmental stage where there's this long process where you go from the time when you're born through the time that you become an adult. And we have an artificial timeline at 18 that we consider somebody legally able to provide that consent information. However, there's this developmental trajectory means that at different stages in a child's life, they're gonna be able to participate to, to varying degrees. And so for neurotypical children, as they get older, especially as they get, you know, closer to being eight, nine, 10, and then when they get into their teen years, you know, their ability to understand what's happening is generally increasing. And it's so important that, you know, children are aware of their bodies too. Um, and I think sometimes we think, oh, they can't make decisions for themselves. And so sometimes I think we conflate that with how do we ensure that their participation is as voluntary as possible? And so it's assent is all about providing developmentally appropriate information to children so that they can participate to the to the fullest degree possible for their age and developmental stage. Right. That's interesting. I think it a typical view would be that they just need to have all the decisions made for them, kind of. Um, but then you don't take into account the fact that they, they kind of know what's going on a lot of times and they yeah, might not want something are, to happen. <laughs> kids are pretty smart. Uh, I think oftentimes <laughs> children are underestimated by people who don't 
work with children all the time. And especially for people who don't yet uh, or who who never have children of their own or don't mm-hmm. in, have interactions with you know, nieces or nephews or children in other capacities. Right. You know, if you tell a two-year-old that you're going to give them a cookie and you don't give them a cookie, <laughs> they will remember. <laughs> and, I, and um, you know, I think just, and it's not that you're going to get like surgical assent from a two-year-old, but again, it's this idea that they are conscious beings who are deserving of respect, who are deserving of not just protection, absolutely they need to be protected, but we also just need to help them have the least stressful experience possible. And as kids get older and their ability to participate really expands, when we exclude them from important decisions about their own bodies, it can be deeply, deeply traumatizing. Mm. Right. Yeah, well, uh, I will just say some things never change because if you tell me you're gonna give me a cookie and then don't, I'll remember also. (laughs) Um, You'd probably be upset about that. Right, exactly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't blame you. (laughs) Uh, So moving on, our next question was, and I found this one very interesting because it's something I haven't come across much. And um, yeah, I just really wanted to know more about what happens when two parents disagree about the care that's being given to their child or a decision that needs to be made for their child. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you guys have really gone for the the easy ones, I can tell. <laughs> so when two, you know, generally speaking, um, if you have two parents who have equal custody rights, that's a really important factor. So if you have parents who um, have equal say in the care of their child and they have a serious disagreement about medical care, that's often something where we need to have some sort of a, a mediated conversation, try to do some conflict resolution, and oftentimes to try to get down to the core of why is it that this disagreement is happening. So it, in, in general, I would say it is fairly atypical for parents to disagree about how to keep their child safe, especially when there's a serious medical condition, but it does happen. And so, for example, it's important for us to make sure, for example, if you have parents who are no longer um, in a relationship with each other that is amicable, at times that uh, any animosity in that relationship can then influence how those decisions are being made. So again, I think it's important for us to just work with those parents as best we can to determine what is it, how is it that we can focus the child and the child's safety and well-being above everything else that's going on in that relationship. Um, Certainly at times there are parents who just have incredibly disparate beliefs about medical care, Um, different beliefs about the use of medications, different beliefs about um, let's say vaccination or surgical interventions. And so again, I think just trying to ensure, do we truly understand where the disagreement is coming from? Because if you make an assumption about where it's coming from, you might really waste a lot of time in (laughs) in your process of trying to resolve it. Right. Yeah. So with your role um, on the ethics committees at your hospital, I'm wondering if you would if you would say that you are possibly more inclined to suggest consulting an ethics committee when two parents disagree in extremely strong ways than say another anesthesiologist who's not as like plugged into the ethics consult world? You know, that's a great question. For pediatricians dealing with parents who disagree, this is like a normal activity. 
This mm-hmm. is not an. Mm-hmm. This is not a rare. It's not so rare that there's a disagreement or parents who are not speaking to each other, things like this happen and mm-hmm. they're not in and of themselves. It isn't like, Oh, if parents disagree, you have to get an ethics consult. I right. think that, you, you know, we use ethics consultation certainly when something has um, really escalated beyond that general, general level that we're more comfortable dealing with. Um, dealing with conflict, dealing with disagreement as a physician, that is just a normal skill that all of us need to be continuing to develop throughout our careers. Right. Yeah, I guess in my head, I was thinking of like the most extreme cases of parents disagreeing when there are like multiple layers of complexity involved. And um, one of them just happens to be the parents disagreeing, (laughs) which is something that is like mundane, but like can be part of a complex ethical dilemma, I imagine. Yeah, I think that when there's really, when we have whatever it is, disagreements or conflicts of whatever kind that are that are extreme, that seem outside of the norm, it's really not unusual for someone to call, you know, me or my partner or to call risk management who sometimes says, hey, you know, we have a close relationship with risk management. I always say that uh, the law and ethics is this big Venn diagram where we're telling people, oh, make sure you also check in with this other person. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, I, I actually think that the times when sometimes we can be helpful is in those more moderate situations where it's, it's not something that's necessarily extreme, but it may become an extreme issue if not handled well, kind of before it's out of hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think a huge part of being an ethics consultant is building relationships. I think that's the most important thing that we can do because, you know, when I was um, providing ethics consultation as an ethics assistant at Cedar sinai I mean, this was almost 20 years ago. And I had attending physicians who would call me and scream at me, how dare you, how dare you Mm. see my patient? How dare you talk to this patient's family? And we, I really don't see that behavior anymore. Mm. And I think it's because, you know, there really was this, this fear that an ethics consultation was somehow saying that you weren't a good doctor, that only people Mm. who are failures need to call for this assistance. But really, I think it's a specialty just like so many other specialties that we have where we just have a unique skill set. You know, not a lot of people have mediation training or specific communication skills training or conflict resolution training. It's something that it would be great, of course, if all of us had. It would also be great if all of us knew how to do a lot of things, but that's not necessarily, <laughs> that's just not necessarily practical. Right. So, <laughs> You know, I really focus on trying to meet my colleagues where they are, suss out with them, where are the stress points for them? Because it's also the the things that are a challenge for one clinician or one nurse or one social worker, they're going to be different from the next person. And so really just working with those people trying to say like, you know, how is it that I can best support you in this particular situation? What kind of support do you need? Right. Yeah, I think that's a great point you make about this being an added skill set that you and your ethics um, consulting colleagues have to offer that should be respected and, of course, taken advantage of and not something that's viewed as like a last resort and something that only like, weak doctors would you know, need to refer to. Um, so I yeah, think it's great that you think there's been this like paradigm shift, it sounds like, where 
in the past, the ethics um, consultation service wasn't respected and wasn't utilized well, but now people are actually understanding that it's a valuable resource a hospital and physicians and other clinicians have to offer and can very well really improve a patient situation and decision outcomes. Yeah, definitely. I think when I worked at at Cedars, it was really an inflection point because it was a very well-respected ethics service and it had really grown. And I think when I was there was really sort of the, the tail end of this fear of the ethics police. Um, there still is a little bit of that that lingers, but it's, it's generally not as uh, much of an issue in younger clinicians. Mm. Do you, what, like, what do you think are um, some reasons for that? I, I, I think it all comes back to relationship building. You know, I don't need to go, we have plenty of, you know, it's a ter- we, I work at a tertiary care hospital. I do ethics consult at another tertiary care hospital. We're doing really innovative care. There's some really big issues that come up on a pretty regular basis because of the, the level of care that we're providing and the level of innovation that we're engaging in. So um, I'm not gonna go I don't need to go looking for work, (laughs) you know, and I think, and I think that's the thing is, you know, ethics services are, are advisory services. We're there to, to help you, to support you. Just like when you need help with a GI issue, you call a gastroenterologist (laughs) or you, you have a a concern about, you know, the patient's heart rhythm, you know, you call, you call cardiology or you call EP. So, you know, really that's how I think of it is, is we're here to, to support and advise I'm not going to tell anybody how to practice medicine because that's, that's not how this works. Right. Great. Yeah. That was really interesting to hear about your experience with the ethics um, committee and um, consult service. Um, And so our next bioethics concept that we'd like to ask you about is the situation of pediatric patients, not always having a voice to advocate for themselves. What do you mean by that? Like we were going off what we were talking about before where pediatric patients are, um, you know, actually can be like quite smart and astute to what's going on, but they might not like have it within them to voice how they feel and what they're aware of. And they just let, you know, their parents do all the talking, but really the pediatric patient has a belief and has an opinion on what they want done to their body and what they're okay with, et cetera, but don't really know how to advocate and speak for themselves about it. Does that sure. clarify? Definitely. And and that's something that adults have a problem with too sometimes. So again, <laughs> I think this um, this idea that these issues are limited to pediatrics is actually, it's a myth. So mm-hmm. there are absolutely adult patients who, you know, they want their, you'll have a, you know, someone who comes in who wants their spouse to make all of their decisions for them. They don't want to speak for themselves. That's not actually that uncommon. And I think the other thing that's relevant is that most families around medical care that I observe have a relationship around these questions where it's very common for parents of teens, for example, even if the most of the conversation has happened with the parent for whatever reason, it's very common for them to turn to the teen and say, well, what questions do you have? And do you feel okay with that? So it's, it's quite infrequent that we have um, one person in the room who is the only person really driving the bus. And the same goes for adults that I've worked with who are 
perhaps less comfortable engaging. There are, however, extremes. There are patients who don't feel comfortable speaking. They may have been traumatized in some way by a medical interaction that has made it difficult for them to participate. So in general, so much of, of the communication that we do is nonverbal. And a big part of our physical exam skills, it's not just you know, auscultating and, you know, feeling pulses and looking at skin. It's also observing the relationships that are happening in front of you and observing the way that, uh, you know, what is a patient's affect? What is their mood? How is it that that's inter, um, inter, uh, interfacing with our conversation? And so, for example, there are times when we may ask to interview a child separately from their parent, just to make sure that we're understanding everything that, um, that we're not missing out on something important. So I generally choose, especially as children get older, to actually have my direct conversation with the child so that the parent is treated more as an observer. Um, and that can be a very useful tool in terms of maintaining your eye contact with the child so that they are more empowered and that can be something that's very useful. Whereas if you have your entire conversation with a parent and the patient is actually a peripheral participant, that can be, um, I think, a, a detriment to the, to the conversation. Right. So yeah, I think our next question that we we're gonna ask kind of goes along with um, the one, you know, some of your answers for, that you've already given for um, the previous questions. We sort of wanted to know, you could look from the outside looking in and say pediatric patients, kids who just don't have as much experience with um, tough, tough situations potentially, or having to make harder decisions for themselves or for others. They, you know, they maybe haven't had as much time to develop a value system or know kind of where their ethics or their morals would lie. And is there any, do you ever have to take that into account or does it sort of fit into what you've been saying already with um, you? you can kind of trust kids to know what is going on with themselves and, and let that be what leads your decision-making as opposed to discounting their experience. I think oftentimes we're working with the whole family, you know, you're, mm. you're working with the child to figure out what are their goals and what are their values and not assuming that because they're under 18 or under 17 or whatever number yeah. you, you have in your mind, rather than assuming that a child does not have a goal or a value, it is important to try to elucidate that just as it's important from an adult patient or from another caregiver, what are your goals and values? Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I think can be particularly challenging, for example, is like end of life care where parents may be really struggling with the fact that their child is dying yeah. and not quite ready to accept that. And so you'll see some very interesting interplay where you can see the child actually trying to protect their parents, uh, um, uh. which is incredibly moving, but sometimes it means it's at the detriment of getting appropriate pain control. So, um, you know, I think it's important that we, how can we take these, these big emotions, these life-changing altering situations, and how can we really take in the, um, all the really relevant factors that are happening in the room and make sure that we're doing what we can, not only to do what's right for the patient, which is always our number one goal, but also to, to really support families through these difficult conversations. Right. I'm wondering, um, given that you're an anesthesiologist specifically, seeing pediatric patients at 
you know, some of the scariest times of their lives. What strategies and methods per se um, do you utilize to help make these patients feel better in the moment, but at the same time, not, you know, lead them um, wrongly and give them like a false picture of what's mm. going to happen or false hope or anything like that. But like you just explained, you know, putting the patient first and wanting to do the best for them. Um, but at the same time, like wanting to make them feel better and comfort them and make them. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting question. In some ways, you know, anesthesiologists have a really unique skill set because we make first impressions every day in and out. We, we don't have, we do have some continuity of care. And I think more than people realize there are patients that I've taken care of multiple times throughout the course of their illness. But in general, we're oftentimes meeting people for the first time. And so we, there's a, a joke in anesthesia that, you know, oftentimes the sedation we use is talkesthesia. And it's because we're good at chatting with people. We're, we're really good at recognizing anxiety. And, and, and every patient presents with a little different flavor of that. You know, some kids, they, they put on a good act. They seem like they're fine. But you can tell that the moment, you know, you're going <laughs> to unbreak the, uh, the gurney to, to go to the OR, you can tell they're going to lose it. So, you know, we just get really good at observing those signs of anxiety, of fear, of joy. Those are really integral to the practice of anesthesia because we do see people during a time when they're about to literally give up their consciousness temporarily to us. And um, that is, that's huge. And I think right. we're very respectful of that and, and very used to, to that interface. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Do you want to move on to some of the other? Yeah, so I think we covered the like articles question. So do we want to jump in, Brennan, to the vaccination question? <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah, so I think one of the hot topic issues, or at least it's not uncommon to see this in the news, is uh, vaccination and sort of a potentially growing wave of vaccination hesitation. And so there's also been stories about teenagers who have been vaccinated against their parents' wishes or um, sort of gone, you know, struck out on their own and, and gone to make sure they get vaccinated. Just wondering if you want to comment on anything um, related to, to the vaccination world as it relates to, to pediatric bioethics questions. You know, it's interesting The um, you know, Ethan Lindberger, who is the teenager that's most famous. He's now an adult. Um, he lived in Ohio and in the state of Ohio, teenagers actually don't have additional rights as adolescents for healthcare. Mm -hmm. So he actually had to wait until his 18th birthday to get vaccinated. And um, that is true in multiple states. So each state has different rules around who can get medical care as an adolescent with or without parental permission or parental consent. So, for example, in the state of California, where I work, for teens who are 12 years old and older, for example, they can consent to any sort of sexually related health care that they need, any reproductive health care that they need, which means they can actually choose to be vaccinated for certain conditions that are related to sexually transmitted diseases. So mm -hmm. a 13-year-old can consent to getting their HPV vaccination, but they can't consent to getting 
their MMR vaccine. So <laughs> it's um, it, these laws were not designed with an assumption that adults that would refuse to vaccinate their children. Okay. So from my perspective, I think if you're able to consent to vaccination in one part of your life, it's a preventative health measure. It's incredibly important. I think that teenagers should be able to vaccinate, to, to consent to vaccination on their own. I think it's very, especially given, you know, right now, obviously everything we're worried about is COVID, COVID, COVID. Yeah. But really, I mean, a few years ago, we had a massive measles outbreak. We right. had another massive measles outbreak last summer. Mm -hmm. So uh, two summers ago, apologies. And so it is so valuable to recognize that adolescents, absolutely, they have developing autonomy. They're not necessarily to able to make every single decision. But really, when it comes down to it, our brains are not done developing until we're like 25 to 30 years old. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're constantly evolving and I think capitalizing on teenagers' ability to, to make, you know, it is an overall very low-risk intervention that potentially has great benefit. So I think that one of the things that will also be very interesting is as we're, you know, all holding our breath for a COVID vaccination will be how is, I have a lot of anxiety about how it is that's going to interface and galvanize with the anti-vax community. And yeah. I think adolescence will be a really interesting arena for that because yeah. generally vaccination has been, it's a state's right generally, although there are certainly federal cases that are used uh, to support it from a public health standpoint, but it's going to be really interesting moving forward because when we have an effective vaccination, it's going to be a big deal that people get it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it'll be very important, obviously, in, in stopping the spread of the virus. And it's sort of the, you know, the last bastion for some people, it seems like, that they're holding out hope for. And uh, it's going to be just, a while. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but either way, it, you know, I just think in discussions I've had with friends and family, um, everyone's a little nervous about just how that will be implemented and how it will be fought against. You know, people might are going, you know, I shouldn't even say might, they're going to push back against it in some way from some sector. And just, uh, you know, I mean, we're seeing the, the gamut, right? Like we're seeing people who are saying, why are you doing clinical studies? Why are you doing phase three studies on this vaccination? Just give it to me. I want to uh. live my life. <laughs> and who, who say like, well, why would I, why would I not do that? But of course, I, I think that seeing the anti-vax community throughout the years and the behavior that we've seen and the, and the true, it comes from truly, I believe, a place of anxiety and fear um, probably because we've been so effective at reducing or eradicating <laughs> the diseases that used to kill people's children more often. But it's so fascinating to me to see both of those happening at the same time. People pushing for a vaccine to be released when we have very unclear evidence about efficacy, about safety, about long-term safety. And yet we also have this very real possibility that we're going to have a ton of pushback from the anti-vax community. And one of the reasons why I think those are both really important and why we have to be thoughtful about how we approach that is we shouldn't be sacrificing safety and efficacy data because 
as soon as there's a negative reaction to any vaccine that we end up seeing, the anti-vax community will capitalize on that and continue to push it. So it's really important for everyone's health and safety that we get good quality data, that we do the science, and that we prepare effectively for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think going off the importance of these trials needing to obtain the required amount of efficacy and safety data um, is a concern that a lot of people have. Recently, like my grandparents have even voiced to me that they're going to be skeptical of getting the vaccine as soon as it gets out because they think all these trials have been have been so expedited that the people who first get the vaccine will still be like guinea pigs in a way. And that once the vaccine's released, that does not mean that it's been like fully studied and fully um, deemed to be ready for launch um, as much as, you know, the flu vaccine or the, you know, MMR vaccine has been in the past. Um, and I like had trouble like responding to my grandparents because I, you know, was considering all the many factors, you know, that such as the ones you've explained and the cost, you know, benefit ratio of people wanting to live their lives versus taking the chance of an adverse reaction with a vaccine that was launched potentially prematurely. Um, yeah, I think well, there's a lot to unravel there. I think, you know, bringing up that point is that really any, just because something goes through phase three testing doesn't, you know, it's been tested on maybe what a couple thousand people or mm -hmm. it, for example, the vaccine trials are being done on 30,000 people, for example. But when that's, when you think about exposing it to like millions or billions of people, then of course that's going to be that's really the phase four trial, right? Is keeping right. track of what happens. And there have been plenty of other medications that were, you know, that went through the study process who were believed to be, that were believed to be safe and effective that were released that then had to be brought back because there were unexpected side effects that we just didn't see until they were exposed to a larger population. Mm -hmm. So those, you know, their concerns are not unfounded. Right. I think the other thing that we have to think about in terms of a vaccination is how do we effectively roll it out? Who are the people that should be prioritized? You know, frontline workers, not just healthcare workers, but people who are Uber drivers, people who are working at grocery stores, um, public health workers who are out, you know, <laughs> trying to do all that public health work, uh, even outside of the hospital, you know, other populations that are really at risk. So, I, you know, we don't need necessarily everybody to be vaccinated right away. And it may be that there are certain people where it makes more sense to start there than others. I think having a, a rational scientifically based process is what's really gonna matter. I think it's frustrating having, having seen the government, both the federal government and state governments not manage this pandemic effectively so far makes me very concerned about how it is that we're gonna roll out a potential vaccine in the future. Yeah. So that gives me, it gives me pause. <laughs> Understandably so, for sure. So also on the topic of the pandemic, um, we wanted to see if um, you have had noticed any changes in either the number or in the topics of the cases being brought um, to your ethics committees amid COVID-19. <laughs> it's interesting you should bring that up. The there's been some interesting studies that or papers that have just recently come out about ethics committees, for example, in the New York area. 
demonstrating how their ethics consultations and the policy work they were being asked to do and the education they were asked to provide really skyrocketed. I think ethics is having a moment right now where we are absolutely getting consulted more. We're getting consulted about a wider variety of issues. It's, it's, sometimes it's still based on individual patients and how do we address this issue, but it's also systemic factors of like, what am I, you know, I have an obligation to treat patients. What if I don't have PPE? There's so much, there's such a high level of anxiety around all of this that it absolutely feeds the fears that brings up more and more ethics consult, um, ethics questions for people. And, you know, we're doing a lot of policy work. I know ethicists around the country are, we're working hours and um, kind of working in just complicated waters that are that are unique for all of us. I think just as for for example, you know, infectious disease doctors are having a moment, public health doctors are having a moment, ethicists are having a moment too. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> just uh it's you know, pandemics just touched everyone in some way. Mhm. Right. Yeah. This is a, you know, I think this is an opportunity of a lifetime, I think for those of us who are in in healthcare, those of us who are who are frontline workers throughout the world, not just in hospitals, you know, we'll remember this the rest of our lives. It's going to change. Yeah. I think the world will be a different place uh, yeah. one day when this is over. Right. Definitely a lot of lingering effects for years to come. Definitely. Yeah. On so many different levels and mm -hmm. in so many different populations. I mean, Brendan and I in our class like jokes all the time that we attend Zoom School of Medicine and we'll, we'll, we'll joke to our future patients and you know children about how we went to medical school when it was online and <laughs> we're inconvenienced and you know our education was changed in so many ways but yeah, yeah it's memorable to say the least. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know I think one of the things that's really valuable is I, I will say that the the more that we've we're, re we're really watching science, watching medical advancements take place in real time. You know, we're watching studies be done that are, that are truly going to change the way we think about this virus, the way that we think about the way we work, you know, before, before HIV and, you know, hepatitis and all these diseases became much more prominent, you know, people didn't even wear gloves to mm -hmm. handle specimens, for example. And right. I can't imagine not having my trusty box of, of gloves mm -hmm. with me. So, you know, we're, I think it's gonna be very interesting for those of us who are practicing now to one day look back at, wow, remember that time when we used to like gather in large crowds and we thought that was totally normal? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> like a, a movie theater, um, a mall, all these places that we don't frequent anymore. You know, and, the, and that's the thing, right, is that for, you know, as an anesthesiologist, I never wore an N95 mask to intubate people unless they actively had some sort of a respiratory illness. I just didn't even think about that. And mm -hmm. now we wear it for every single intubation, for example. And I, I don't think that's going to go away. I really don't. Yeah. Right. Wow. I think we're thinking about PPE differently. And that's the other thing too that's interesting is when you look at, um, for example, a lot, a, lot, a lot of hospitals have decided to cohort their COVID patients. So you have one unit where everybody gets the donning and doffing training again, the, everyone's got a plan for like how they're gonna provide care. And in those units, it just becomes normal. And so there's not this fear 
of the unknown. And for so many of us, especially early on in the pandemic, it's really scary because you're you're dealing with knowledge that's changing literally on a daily basis, if not hourly. You'd get different advice every day about what you were supposed to do or not do. The advice you got last week about what PPE you were supposed to wear was different potentially than the next week. And so it's just requiring, I think, a, a level of cognitive load that is very stressful and it is exhausting. So for but for people who work around COVID patients a lot, they figure out what works, they figure out how to feel safe, they figure out how to maintain the information that they need to maintain. And so then it becomes more challenging when you have, for example, a COVID patient who's on a unit that doesn't usually deal with that. So it suddenly it becomes this very stressful environment. So I think that you know, ongoing training, all of these things can help to reduce that anxiety so we can do, our, do the work that's so meaningful and take good care of our patients. Right. Yeah. Um, so just to wrap up, um, you know, this has been very insightful and we are medical students and a lot of people who listen to this are um, either medical students or pre-meds and um, hoping to be soon. And so we're just wondering if you have any advice on how students like us can stay informed about, you know, ethics um, policies or ethics um, issues and specifically pediatric ethics issues, if, um, if you know? You know, there's, there's ethics happening all the time. Uh, there's a great blog that's through the American Journal of Bioethics called bioethics.net. Um, and mm. that's just a great overview of lots of different ethical issues. Uh, the, there's certainly a number of journals that publish very regularly that are specifically bioethics journals. But ethics is something that touches on every aspect of our lives and every aspect of our careers. I would say as uh, current and future medical students, you know, don't lose your moral compass. Your moral compass is super important. Mm -hmm. um, in the future, you may not remember the Krebs cycle <laughs> for any particular <laughs> reason. Not to like, you know, it's just kind of an easy thing to, 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 to dig on. But, you know, it, it, oftentimes in medical training, because you're not getting tested on ethics issues necessarily and you're not you don't have that responsibility that final responsibility for the patient the way that your attendings do it it can feel like oh i'll worry about that later mm. and i think it can be really stressful for physicians when suddenly they're faced with an ethics issue and they're like i wait a minute, how is it that I am not trained for this? How is it that I don't know what to do here? Because we're so used to knowing how to do so many aspects of our, of our work. Um, so I would just say, you know, again, almost all places have some sort of mechanism for dealing with ethical questions. I think just don't let go of that moral compass, follow it. When you get that feeling that something's wrong, explore it. Don't let it go. Yeah. That's great advice, I think, in general for medical students <laughs> and budding medical students. You know, there are so many important decisions to be made along, you know, the journey of becoming a physician and becoming the person we seek to become, but staying true to yourself is always really important. Miles Sheehan used to say, you know, who am I becoming by my actions? Mm. And as, you know, Stretch conveys all the time, you know, the importance of us reflecting and thinking about the person we're becoming when we decide what activities to pursue, what causes to care about, what things to read about, you know, 
it stems on it, it spans on so many different levels i think the way in which we can work to become the people and the professionals um that we aspire to become something that was said a lot when i was in medical school was you know how do you ensure that you're becoming a person for others mm. and and i in some ways, uh, self-care is part of that as well. You can't do a great job taking care of other people if you don't take care of yourself. And managing moral distress is definitely part of becoming a great physician. Also, every time you're learning something and whether it is that, you know, what motivates you is getting in a lab and pipetting things because you're going to figure out some amazing new genetic thing or whether what you want to do is work in a clinic caring for a particular population of people, or you're going to, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you are going to put your heart and soul into as part of your role as a physician, those are all things that you can use to, to really serve your community, to serve, to serve other people. And for me, that's one of the core elements of being a physician is being a person who can use my time and energy to serve others. It's clear that you definitely do that in your work. And I think listeners will understand how that's the case. So we're really glad you were able to talk with us today about your work as a pediatric anesthesiologist and bioethicist, as well as a stretch alum as well. So that makes it even more special for us. And so we know that you have a very well-followed Twitter account. So we're just wondering if you'd like to share with our listeners what your handle is, if, you know, they want to follow and keep tabs on bioethics issues you tweet about. You can follow me at Burgart Bioethics. It's got an X at the end. Um, But if you just search for Burgart, you'll find me. Okay, great. We think our listeners will find that valuable too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, so thanks so much for coming on. This was really great talking to you. I think very educational and uh, a lot, just a lot of great information that I I, I found interesting and um, just would love to kind of keep in mind going forward. So thank you so thanks much. Thanks for having me. As always, thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, no patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.